Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. If you have your Bibles, I would ask that you open them up to the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke 16. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, that is okay. If you have a smartphone, iPad, or whatever, we are absolutely cool with you reading uh, the Word of God in whatever way that you can through technology. Um, But if you have forgotten your Bible, uh, we have one probably right at your feet or in the vicinity of you um, even as I speak. We're in our third week of the series called He Gave, We Give. Uh, The first week, I tried my very best for you to understand that that we're rich, that we are rich in the gospel. We're not always rich in money, but as a country, I would think it's safe to say that we are the richest country in not only in the world today, but but really in the world ever, in, in that has ever existed, we have just amassed this amount of wealth. And with that wealth, uh, it deserves a response, especially from Christians, that we as Christians are called to be generous of that. And the scripture that we have used for the last several weeks is is this, and it's 1 Timothy 6.18. Uh, that is not what I just asked you to flip to. So don't think that uh, things just got weird. This is all on purpose. First uh, Timothy 6.18 says this, Command them, that's a strong word, the word command, command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Last week, really, the, the sermon topic was on the idea of just being generous, not just with your money, but with your time and with your, your home. And this is, there's going to be many uh, correlating themes today, but we're going to kind of take it from a different angle. Last week, it was talking about generosity. This week, it more digs into that first word in that verse. Everybody on the count of three, let's say it's the verses on the screen. Okay. I want everybody on the count of three to say that word. Ready? One, two, three. I said everybody. Can everybody do it? All right. One, two, three. Better. Better. The word command. Many of us, we're kind of afraid of that word, if we're honest. We're like, command. Like, you're telling me to do something. Yeah, it's the Bible. There's a lot of things that it tells us we're supposed to do. But we kind of, we push back maybe on that word and we say, I I don't know. I don't know. Like, Command. I mean, didn't we have 10 of those? And we're supposed to do those, right? Not supposed to kill each other. Got that taken care of. And now, are we adding to this list? No. No. Because this specifically is written to Christians. If you're not a Christian, this doesn't necessarily pertain to you. You can kind of pick and choose what you want to believe. Um, you're accountable to it. But if we're honest, either Christian or non-Christian, we want good in the world, right? Do we want good in the world? And, and the Lord Jesus wants us to, to promote and to bring good into the world. And, and that strong word, the word command, is an intentional word, is it not? It's an intentional word. It's telling us, Christians, hey, you, you can't just live your life the way that you want to live it and think that everything's okay. We're commanded, we're told specifically Christians... We're saved by grace through faith, but we're commanded, we're, we're being led, intentionally led down this path to do good, be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Not just our money, but our life and our home and everything in between. Um, recently at the Zook House, we've been kind of combing through some pictures. Uh, I like to go through old 
uh, some of the old pictures, it's mainly because that's I get to look at pictures of what I used to look like. Does anybody do that? Like you go through your house and you look at pictures and you're surprised at what you used to look like. If if you if that's you, just raise your hand in honesty. That's all right. Just look forward. Don't look at each other. Right. That's kind of and so I'm kind of going through these pictures and really I've been kind of moved to do this, and, and this is new to my kids. My kids don't even know this yet. We haven't had an opportunity, but kind of going through some pictures to kind of share some stories about my life, and, and not just my personal life, but also with Marla and myself. And so we've kind of taken a bunch of pictures out. And I was kind of going through these pictures, and I was like ooh and awning on what I used to look like, and before my hair started to go back, and you know, all these things, before I had facial hair, couldn't even grow facial hair like that far back, you know. So I'm kind of going through these pictures, and it just it strikes me. I get right through this packet of pictures of, of when I was in boot camp. And I, I served four years in the Navy. But it was so interesting. I'm looking at these pictures, from, and it brought back all these memories of boot camp. And specifically, the pictures that I was looking at was my boot camp graduation. And Marla, we were not married at the time. We got married right after this, but... I had my sweetheart there at my graduation. I had my parents there. And I was just sitting back, and there's, you know, this is before digital photos, so the, the picture quality is terrible. It's like in a dark room, you know, and it's like a long picture, all of us standing at attention and doing all the things we're supposed to do and marching around this room and all this craziness. And, and there's these pictures, and I was so drawn back to it and just kind of brought right back to that moment. But, you know, getting to that moment was a process. And it started the first day of boot camp. Now, the first day of boot camp was, was pretty memorable. You know, you, you get no sleep. I think I got about two hours of sleep, if you want to call it that. You're scared to death. And then all of a sudden, at about 2, 3 in the morning, you're, you're woken up with a metal trash can thrown down the corridor in between the room. That was kind of my boot camp experience. Now, I will just tell you this, parents of teenagers, this is actually the only quality way of guaranteeing you're going to wake up your teenagers, is throw a metal trash can down the hallway. But I, kind of going through, and I, as I'm looking at this picture, it's like just this flood of memories. And, and the, the whole process of, of boot camp started on that day. And, and they called us to attention, and we're standing at the end of our bunks, and we're trying not to pass out, and we're scared. Our knees are knocking. We have no idea what to do. We're just thrown in a room with a bunch of people who are foreign to us, and we're scared. But, but you know what? The whole process, all the way from that day, the first time I stood at attention and didn't even know how to do it, all the way through and all the marching around and all of the cadence and all the things that I had to do, all led to my graduation day. Because the very things I learned on that day, I brought into the final day of boot camp. You know what? It's kind of the same thing as a Christian. We live our life, and the, the moment of our salvation is something that's supposed to propel us through the rest of our life here on earth. It's all connected. It's a matter of not just the first day that now I've received Jesus and now I get to go back to the way that I used to live and now I get to go back to do what I want to do now that I'm eternally secure. It's a matter of that salvation experience is supposed to challenge us and move our hearts and move our minds to move our hands and feet in the direction of doing good in the world. That our first day of salvation is supposed to be something that carries us through all the way to even our last day here on earth. What about you? 
What about you? What, would you say that, that you've had maybe moments and maybe, maybe even decades, maybe years, maybe months of your Christian experience where you're just like, you know what? I just wasn't living with intentionality. Like there were these times like I was really fired up and everything was about the gospel. Everything was about the gospel. And then maybe something happened. You got a random bill in the mail. Maybe it's, maybe it's just Christmas for you. Maybe you, you went through the, the loss of a loved one. Then all of a sudden it wasn't about the gospel anymore. Then it was just kind of about you. Maybe I'm just kind of preaching to myself, but, but I can kind of do that myself. Or I can, I can lose track of the main thing and keeping the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is, as a Christian, the main thing is promoting the gospel. Now, as we get into God's Word this morning, got to tell you this can be a little bit confusing. This is a parable. I'll explain what that means in just a moment. There are many different writing styles in the Bible. And, and I just want to maybe clear some confusion for you if you're new to the Bible. Maybe you don't study the Bible as much as you want to, as much as you even need to. I would say this. The, the Bible is written in a bunch of different literary forms. There's some things that are very poetic. It just, I mean, just speaks to your heart. And you kind of go through and it just kind of warms your heart and you read it and it's poetry and it's beautiful. And then there are other things that's kind of like a history book. And you're just like, man, this is like, okay, this is so black and white. This happened and boom, that happened. And it seems so simple. And then there are other places in, in specifically Paul's letters to where it's just kind of like, like, you know, like just a shotgun of truth. It's like, boom, 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 all these truths. And like, what do I do with them? It's like, here's a verse and here's like four truths I just have to apply to my life. Well, this parable of Jesus and every parable of Jesus has a different form all of its own. And when Jesus would teach parable, he did so not so that it would be the easiest to understand. He would speak a parable so that you would have to dig to find the truth. And I, I just want you to know that's what you're going to have to do with this text. With, we at Dublin Bible Church, we don't believe that you can just kind of pick and choose. We believe that, that this is the fullness of the Word of God and it, it can all be taught and it is all applicable to our lives. So we are not going to pick and choose and kind of cherry pick the things that we want to teach and when we want to teach them. We want to teach the fullness of God's Word, even if it gets complicated. You're scared, aren't you? This is the parable of the shrewd manager. Luke 16. Third gospel. We're going to jump right in. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So this, this rich man was accusing this manager. So the rich man, he, he's, he's, the, he's the owner, he's the person with all of the money. The manager is somebody who's just handling the rich man's business. He called him in and he asked him, he says, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So we know that, the, that something has happened here. We're kind of like jumping into a story and like the, you, you see there's probably, it seems like there's already been dialogue that's already happened. And all of a sudden, the, 
the rich man is telling the manager, hey, you're not even going to have this job anymore because I already know that, the, that you're guilty of something. But look what the manager says. He says that he said this to himself. He's just kind of thinking, well, what can I do? How can I, how can I take care of this? What, what am I going to do about this? He says, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Oh, I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he's trying to devise a plan. He's like, hey, uh, I'm going to be hungry. I'm going to be homeless. I'm not, I'm gonna, not going to have a job. My, my job already knows it's going to be taken away. He's like, how can I make sure that I'm going to be taken care of after I get fired? Verse 5, this is what he did. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. It doesn't seem right. Then he asked the second, well, well how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. So all of a sudden, it seems like in the text that this manager was, he was doing something wrong before and it seems like he's doing something really wrong right now because he's cheating out his, the, the, the rich man, the owner. He's, it seems like he's cheating him out of money. But the point of the parable isn't to follow the money. The point of the parable is to follow the motive. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. He commended him. Mind you, this is a story. This isn't, this isn't something that actually happened. This is a story that Jesus, you know, being Jesus, he just kind of came up with this story. So the master commended the dishonest manager. It seems, it seems to conflict one another right there. He commended him. He's like, good job. You cheated me out of some money. You know, that's what it seems like. He commends the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. That's a big word. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. Who are the people of the light? Somebody tell me. Christians. So Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? He, he's getting to his point right now. He's getting to his point. He said that the people in the world, they're shrewd to one another. They, they, and really, the, that word shrewd, not used often at all in the Bible, it literally means uh, wisely or prudently. Not like the wisdom that you see in Proverbs. But he, he says, the people of the world... They're shrewd toward one another. They're wise toward one another. Albeit, if, if they're people of the world, that means that they're to do things and to get things for themselves, right? So people of the world, they're, he's setting up a contrast. Christians are supposed to be living a life for the gospel, and people of the world are living a life for themselves. So he says the people of the world, they're living a life to themselves, and they're being shrewd in their dealings, but yet... He's getting to the deeper truth. He says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Okay. But look what Jesus said. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal 
dwellings. Huh. So the point of the whole idea of being the shrewd manager with the rich man, the owner, however you want to see that, the whole point is follow the motive. This the shrewd manager was trying to basically take care of himself, and Jesus makes the switch, and he, and he talks to us as Christians today, and he says, you look at the world, they're shrewd like that. And then he's also telling us as Christians to be wise in our dealings with people of the world. But why? To draw them to ourselves? Somebody say no. It's not to draw people to ourselves, that we, we are... We are basically being told as Christians that we need to be wise in our dealings with people of the world to bring them to Christ. That's what he's telling us to do. Which means we we need to think about the friends that we have. Which means that we need to intentionally go out and be, be wise about the people that we bring into our house. Not just people that we absolutely agree with and people that are friends with us and we have all fun together. We need to be wise and invite unsaved people into our home and be intentional to share the gospel. Same thing with our church. I have to, I have to be honest with you. Many times, many times, people... Even a church that's healthy, and, and it's, it's a great church like ours. Many times a church just becomes a safe haven for Christians, and it stops being a hospital for sinners. And the moment that happens, there's a fracture in the body. And the moment that, that happens, there's a fracture, a fracture in the mission of the church, and something has gone wrong. It has to be a hospital for sinners and a safe haven for Christians, a place where we can come in and we can love on one another and we can one another one another like I've talked about over the last couple months. We come together, we build one another up, we love one another, we forgive each other, and we show the rest of the world what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit and to be Christians, the Christ ones here on earth. But also, we have to be shrewd in our dealings as a church to say, you know what, we could create such a wonderful environment for Christians and totally push out even the idea of having non-Christians come into this place. It has to be a hospital for sinners. I'm not saying that, that Christians aren't sinners. We are. But I'm trying to show... I'm trying to show the contrast. This isn't just supposed to be a safe haven for Christians. We all come together, we sing songs we like, and hear messages we like, and everything's great. We have to, we have to as a church, be shrewd and be wise in our dealings to invite the lost into this place. And the moment that we stop doing that, there's, there's a shift. And there's a fracture, and we, we, we miss something. Because the assembly... Of, of, in this place, in this time, is not just so that we can come in and be encouraged in all these things. It's a matter of, of reaching lost people. And the way that you do that is you invest in lost people. That you invest in, in lost people relationally probably before you bring them into this place. Maybe it's at work. Maybe for you, you're out and maybe it's the very person who sits at the lunch counter or sits at lunchtime, sits by themselves, and it seems like they don't have any other friend. Maybe you need to be intentional and just go sit next with them and befriend them. Whether it's a student, that absolutely applies. Or maybe it's in your workplace. 
And it's just, instead of just sitting around your circle and your bubble and your little, your little safe zone and all of your friends, maybe you need to step outside of that because maybe there's somebody outside of that perimeter who needs to hear about the power and the, the saving name of Jesus Christ. But the only way that's going to happen is if you're intentional. You have to be intentional. Look what else Jesus says. Verse 10, he says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Ponder that for a moment. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, and here's a connector in verse 11. So if you have, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, how will you trust, or how, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? The idea here is stepping out of, of the temporal, the temporary, and starting to think of the eternal. See, we can live our lives for us. We can go to work and we can make money and we can, we can assemble all of our friends and we can have an echo chamber of truth and we can do all those things and totally miss the gospel. We can, we can do that and it becomes so easy. It almost becomes routine. Because you go to work every day. You know that there are certain people you get along with. You know there are people you don't get along with. And it can be so routine. And then all of a sudden, you've drifted into thinking about the temporal, the temporary, the right now. And you've missed the eternal. Of who can I bring the gospel message to? Or who can I bring into this place so that they would see God's, or see and experience the, the warmth of, of Christian love, but then also to experience our Savior. But you don't do that by accident. You, you don't do that by accident. You've got to go out and you have to be very strategic because the very place that you work is, is a gold mine for the gospel. The very place that you work is filled with people in this community who may very well say that they're affiliated with the church, but they haven't been there in five years. Or they say, oh, that's my church right here, but they've never had a saving experience. But what they're talking about is, that's my grandma's church, that's my mom and dad's church, but I left that church whenever I had the option to leave. So for us... There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians. They call themselves Christians right here, but they're not Christians. There's a lot of people in our community who call themselves Christians, but they've, they've never accepted Jesus Christ in a personal way. There are many people who, who have, who, they call themselves Christians, but yet they're not followers of Christ. Maybe they need you to show them the way. Verse 13 says this, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one 
and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't. You can't. What if, what if the use of your wealth, your time, and your service was a measuring rod of your faith? What if, what if that's the case? I'm not talking about earning your salvation. We're going we're gonna to clear up any confusion with that in just a moment. But what if, what if in your life, that the, the way that you spend your money, your wealth, your time, and your service, what if that was a measuring rod for your faith? So in a lot of ways, I think that it is. It's not a salvation issue. But that's a way for you to kind of gauge to say, am I living for me or am I living for the gospel? Is this all about me or is this all about Jesus? Am I pushing people away from, from Christ or am I bringing them to Christ? I believe the reason why Jesus, he, it seems like he makes another switch here. And like I said, I, I understand this is not the, the most crystal clear of, of lessons from Jesus. But you have to dig in to find out what the truth is. Look what he says in verse 14. And you see the audience. I believe there's a switch here. You have to kind of read into the text and allow the text to read into us. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. I believe the switch in this text right here is he makes another switch. And he says, you cannot, he says, you can't serve two masters. It's impossible. But I believe in this text, he's not only speaking to the, to the original audience, but he's also kind of reaching out to the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, it says in the text, that they, they loved money. Look at it, it says in verse 14, the Pharisees, they loved money. And the Pharisees were very religious and, religious, and they just loved to be seen by other people. And they wanted everybody else to know that they were the religious ones and that, that they were better than everybody else and they had it together. And the consequence was they were actually drifting farther and 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 farther, and farther away from God. I want to put up a chart. Just kind of explain this. This is, this is the world we live in. The chart is this. I'll make sure that this is on the screen after the service. I want you to, to, to meditate on this. I want this to challenge you. This is not my idea. This is from a wonderful book called Center Church by Timothy Keller. Brilliant-minded man. Lives in New York City. But he's, he's paralleled, and there's more to it than this, but this is what I'm going to show you this morning. He's paralleled the idea of legalism or religion. And the reason why I bring this out is because the Pharisees had legalism and religion down pat. And I believe this is a rampant problem even in our day. Maybe even in your mind and your heart. First thing on the list. Legalism says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. As long as I'm a good boy or girl or man or woman, then I'm accepted by God. So it's on condition of the way that I behave. That's legalism. 
That means that if you jump through hoops today to try and to keep your salvation and earn your salvation, that means you have to jump through more hoops tomorrow to do the same thing. Sounds exhausting, doesn't it? Because it's unbiblical. But grace, the grace that's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I'm accepted. Because the first day of my salvation, God put his stamp of approval on me. I'm an adopted child of God, not just for this day, but for all of my days. And now all of a sudden, my, his grace surrounds me. He loves me. He keeps me. Therefore, he loves me so much. Now I want to obey. It's completely different than the world system. It's different than good old-fashioned Southern Christianity. It's different. Please receive it. I'm not jabbing in our culture. I love our culture. But, but our culture has been tainted with sin just like every other culture has. And it needs to be redeemed by Christ. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I'm accepted. God loves me. He knew who I was in the womb. He knew all the things that I would do, good and bad. And he said, you know what? You've accepted me in a personal way. I put my stamp of approval on you. You're an adopted child of God. You have, you have accepted redemption. That compels me to obey. Because I'm loved. That means I don't have to work out my salvation. That means I'm saved. Man, and now, now you've called me to something bigger than myself, and now we go out and we, we chase this thing called the gospel. Second thing is this, legalism. The motivation is based on fear and insecurity. Fear and insecurity. See, that's the very thing that Pharisees would do. They would, they would put all of these extra rules on the people, and, the, and, and as soon as the people would try and, like, try and figure it out, the Pharisees would say, oh yeah. they back to it and they'd say, well, did you think about this one? Did you think about this one? There were even oral laws. They would just like make stuff up on the spot. And then they would go out and tell other people. And then all of a sudden, it was all based on fear and insecurity. They would in, inflict the fear on the people. And then the people were always insecure about their faith. They, they, they always were led to try and work out their salvation. See, I would even say many of you, 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 you're kind of stuck in the same bubble. And the reason why I give you this chart on this day is because Jesus Christ gave it all for us. It's only right that we give back, not to earn our salvation, but because of our salvation. And if, we, if we've accepted grace, our motivation is grateful joy. It's grateful joy that God says, you know what? You're saved. You're saved from your own devices. You're saved from yourself. And you're saved because the, 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 first, the first day that you received my grace is going to be the very thing that sustains you until the end of your days. And now you get to serve. And now your heart gets to overflow with joy. And it's, it's a matter of grateful joy. Now I get to serve my Lord instead of I have to serve my Lord. I get to serve my Lord. It's completely different. Even this, just kind of just digging into our culture, maybe digging into your hearts, maybe digging into your experience. The idea of, deeper idea of legalism is I obey, I obey to get things from God. See, this is, this is maybe even a little bit more tangible in your life 
Because for you, you would say, you know what, I'm a Christian, and I want to be, I want to be a good Christian, right? I don't want to be a lame Christian. I want to be a good Christian because I want to get good things from God. If that's your motivation, that, that is a legalistic idea that you've incorporated into your faith walk. Because now all of a sudden you're going through and you're like, you know what, grace is good, but it's enough. I want just I want a little bit more of God's blessings. I'm gonna give, I'm gonna do to God, do for God, I'm gonna serve, I'm gonna use my wealth, I'm gonna use my time, but I'm only doing it because I really want God to, to, to fill up the storehouse behind me. And as long as God's filling it up, I'm gonna keep doing it, but but the moment that I feel like that He's not doing what doing his part, I'm not gonna do my part. That's legalistic. The grace side of it says, get this, I obey to get God. To get God. To delight and resemble Christ. To delight. To enjoy. There's nothing more enjoyable. I, I, have, I, I, have, I have tasted the world's sin. And let me tell you, I have. And I'm not glorifying in that, but I'm telling you, there's nothing as good as delighting in the Lord. Nothing. I don't know where you are. You may be, you may, you know, I, I, I say this a lot. There are, there are churched people, there are de-churched people, and then there are unchurched people. And most people in our community are not unchurched, they're de-churched. They've kind of been in church, they, mom and daddy's made them come to church, and then all of a sudden they were seniors in high school, they went to college, they heard from a professor, or they went to work, they moved outside of their home, and now they're de-churched. They're gone from church because they haven't, they haven't had a salvation experience of their own, or they, they have, and yet because there's been something tainted in the body of Christ, and now they've decided to live outside of it. And I would say this, then you haven't truly delighted in God. See, we, we get God as a Christian. You have, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You get God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three are God. There's not like a hierarchy. They're all three God. And we, we get God. We get the Holy Spirit to, to reside within us. To compel us to good works. The warmth of His Spirit. The encouragement of His Spirit. You can have that. But you have to break the chains, the, the chains that say, you know what, I obey to get things from God. I'm going to come to church because I want my family to be better. I'm going to come to church because I'm, I want my wife to, to get better. I want my husband to get better. I want my kids to mind me, so I'm going to bring them to church. I'm going to put $5 in the offering plate today at church. I'm going to, I'm going to do for God about $10, but I want him to do for me $50. That's legalistic. You're trying to work it out. You're trying to manipulate God. And that's the very thing that the Pharisees tried to do. All based on fear, manipulation, and insecurity. And I love this part, the grace part of this. My identity and self-worth in legalism says this, my, my identity and self-worth are based on how hard I work and how moral I am, so I look down on those that I perceive as lazy or immoral. Read that again. You missed it. You missed it. My identity 
and self-worth are based on how hard I work and how moral I am. I've got it all together. The world is the world, and I expect the world to do what they're supposed to do. But I've got it together. Look at me. i got it together. I go to church on Sunday. i got my new shoes on on Sunday. i got my clean clothes on on Sunday. I've got everything figured out. And all that happens is you're creating this divide, and you're dividing yourself from the gospel. You're not in gospel-centered living. You're in self-centered living. And I have to tell you, many Christians put themselves in this bubble. They put themselves there. Now all of a sudden their identity and so forth is based on how hard they work and how moral they are. So they look down on those that they perceive as lazy or immoral. Think about on a national level. Think about on a national level. And the things that are going on in our culture right now. And the things that, that, that Christians should stand up for. Christians should be campaigning for the orphans and widows and fatherless in our generation. They should be. And we're campaigning for the wrong things. It's because we have, we have become self-absorbed and now we're saying my identity and my self-worth is based on how hard I work and how moral I am and if I'm moral and you're not moral then obviously I'm better than you which is an absolute lie. Because outside of the grace of God we have nothing. Look at the grace element at the bottom of that chart. My identity. I'm personalizing this. My identity and self-worth is centered on the one who died for my my or from for his from his enemies right we were enemies of the cross and he died on our behalf we were enemies of the cross but the grace of god poured over us by the blood of jesus christ on the cross was because i was an enemy and because i couldn't work it out myself then god said you know what i'm going to give the very best the very best thing to you that I can. You see, there's going to be this baby who's born in a manger. Everybody's going to look at this baby, and they're going to see this poor, pitiful baby born in a manger, poor family, looks like they've got nothing, but he's the Savior of the world. And he's going to live this, this, this sinless life, and he's going to go on, and he's going to share all these profound truths, and he's going to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, but nobody's going to see it. Then all of a sudden... The grace of God, as He's taken and He's brought through the stages of His crucifixion, and He's nailed to that, that, that rugged cross, the cross that He had to carry to Calvary. When He was a baby, all the way to the cross. And no one knew who He was then the grace of God appears. He doesn't just die for the sins of humanity. He resurrects, comes back three days later, and he says, I told you. And that sent the church in the direction of sharing the gospel because they had experienced grace when all that they heard was legalism. But look what it says at the end, bottom right of your chart. So I can't look down on 
anyone. Can't look down on anyone. Somebody lives differently than you, outside of the grace of God, you're right in their shoes. Somebody, somebody looks different than you, Nope, grace of God says, you know what, they're created in His image just like I am. I'm an image bearer of, of Christ. That's who I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be Christ to, to a lost world. Nope, the grace of God says, I can't look down on anyone. This person is, it, it appears that they're not working and all these things. Nope, the grace of God says, you know what, I love them. Yeah, they're not working. You don't know their story. They've had a story to get to that place. But because God gave himself of you, now, Christian, he says in, in 1 Timothy 6.18, the verse that was on the screen earlier, he says, now I command you to do good in the world. I command you to do good in the world, to be generous in love and good deeds. I command you to do so. Be willing to share of yourselves. Be willing to share in this place and invite people into this place. You have what it takes. You have a home. You have a car. You have exactly what it takes to do what it is that God wants you to do. It's not always the easiest thing to kind of put, put our minds and our hearts in the place where Christ wants us to be. And that's why he says very clearly in verse 13... No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Can't do it. So just as the beginning of this text seems kind of, kind of, kind of fuzzy, unclear, and then Jesus says, I want to make it crystal clear for you. I want to make it crystal clear. You can't love God and money. You either love the one or despise the other. But let me tell you something else. Go in your Bibles to Philippians 3. Just a couple books. It's in the New Testament. You're going to go to the right. Just a couple books. Philippians 3, verse 17 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes this to the church at Philippi. He says, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, And now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ this is not our home we have a citizenship in heaven waiting we're there the moment we leave here as Christians the moment we leave here our citizenship is set it's already set And because it's set, 
We need to do uh, what this scripture says. Live according to the pattern. The pattern of the pattern of the word of God. We need to pattern our life after the word of God. And he says that there are some who are enemies of the cross. Enemies of the cross. And he says their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is their shame. Their God is their stomach. They live under what, what Andy Stanley calls the what greed is. He says the greed is the assumption that all we have is for our consumption. Greed is, is the assumption that all we have is for our consumption. It's like I have it so I can use it. I have it so I can use it. I have it. I've earned it. I can keep it. It's mine. And he says that's the very definition of greed. And that's what you see in verse 19, right smack dab in the middle of verse 19, he says, their God is their stomach. It's a matter of what they can consume. It's like, we live in the world, we're living for the things of the world, and it's all about us. We're going to do what we want to do, we want to consume what we want to consume, and everything I have is for me, and it's all me, and me and mine, and that's all it is. And he says, they are, in essence, enemies of the cross, and their glory is their shame. The very thing that we're supposed to glorify Christ, and the watching world is supposed to see us, and to see the glory emanating from us as Christians. And he says, the very thing that emanates from them is their shame. I just want to tell you, if we, if we live our lives for us, and we devote all of our time and our resources and our homes and our relationships all for us, our glory before the world is what the Word of God says is shame. But it doesn't have to be. Because we have this promised citizenship in heaven. And we have a Savior who's waiting for us. Who's waiting to receive us. And I, I, I want to be received with the well done, good and faithful servant. That's how I want to be received. Isn't that what you want? As Christians, you, you may not feel like you have a lot to give. And I'm not, even, I'm not even talking about money. I'm not talking about all, any of those things. What I want is I want you to live with just I want you to live intentionally. Because I know that your lifestyle, the, what, you, what you spend time on, all your hobbies, all of these things, all your relationships, it's all a matter of where your heart lies. And if, if, if Christ comes into your life and your, your life, your heart starts beating for the gospel, then everything else will follow. And amazing things will happen. Christ gave. Not that we have to give, but so that we can give.